0: All right, let's go ahead and look at our scripture, which can be found in the back of the And This is 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, and we are looking again. I preached on this passage last week. This was the, the latter part of the passage, and I really didn't get to finish up my sermon because uh, I ran out of time. And so I, I want to cover this uh, particular issue more. This is what it says. Uh, I wrote to you in my letter, Corinthians, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The word of the Lord. Well, Paul has been talking to the Corinthians, and he's been speaking to them, the fact that their life doesn't match up with their message that they speak of the holiness of Jesus Christ, of the life transformation that Jesus Christ brings, but they're not showing it in their life. And so he has been rebuking them and communicating to them that you need to get your own house in order uh, if you are going to be of any use in God's kingdom. And in the midst of that, he speaks about how we are to relate to outsiders, to not judge outsiders. But that doesn't tell us a whole lot in terms of how we are to relate to outsiders. And so I wanted to take a moment and to spend some time talking about how do we relate to outsiders. There are many different positions we can take toward those who are outside the church. We can withdraw from the world. We can conform to the world. We can criticize the world. We can accept the world. What we have discovered as Christians is that now Christian beliefs are in the minority, right? So how are we to relate to others in the world in which we increasingly find ourselves as outcasts? You're dealing with some of these difficult issues in your own world, aren't you? In the work, in society, the transgender issue. Someone wants to, uh, be called by certain pronouns. Should I do that? Should I not do that? What's the loving thing? What's the right thing? My HR um, department is telling me that there are certain policies and beliefs that I have to adopt to continue to work at this company. Do I, should I adopt them? Should I not? How do I love and how do I bear witness in a world increasingly antagonistic to Christianity? But we need to look to Jesus Christ. There was none more different from this world than Jesus. And yet he came into the world. And he loved the outsider. And was full of grace and truth. And through his witness to the world, he transformed the world. And he suffered for it. Jesus is calling us to walk in his steps in this world in which we live. The point of the sermon is actually quite simple. That you are the leaven that God is sending into the world. So be Christ into the world. Because God wants to use you to transform the world. Well, how do we do that? We're going to need to do three things. Number one, we're going to need to see our world arightly. Rightly. We're going to need to have the right glasses in which we look at the world around us. Number two, we're going to need to know how to be leaven to individuals in our world, the relationships we have with people. And then finally, we're going to need to understand how we are to be leaven to the culture and society in which we live. So let's begin. We must see our world rightly. We must understand the world in which we live. Paul here in this passage, we see that he's speaking about two groups of people. There are brothers and sisters, and there are outsiders. The brothers he's referring to are part of the church. There is the church, and then there are those outside of the church. And when I'm speaking of the church, I'm speaking of what we would call the invisible church, meaning believers in Jesus Christ. And he's speaking about outsiders who are outside this invisible church. And he's not using it in a pejorative sense. He's simply talking about those who don't follow Jesus, in which he calls them the world. The Bible has a lot to say when it talks about the world and talks about us. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, he's speaking of believers, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. The Bible says that we are strangers and aliens in this world. Think of that. We know about the term alien, right? An illegal alien or a legal alien. It means someone that doesn't belong. Their citizenship is not here. A stranger is someone who is Not at home. This is not where they come from. We, as Christians, no longer belong to the world. We are strangers and aliens in this world in which we live. So where is our home if we're strangers and aliens here? Ephesians 2.19 puts it this way. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's speaking about the kingdom of God and the people of God, and he's saying that you are no longer strangers and aliens to that group of people, but that is your home now. In other words, our citizenship is in heaven, not on earth. And as such, we have responsibilities in how we are to live. Philippians 1.27 puts it this way, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This word manner of life, polituēste, is the word in the Greek means citizenship. So another way to translate this is only let you behave as citizens who are worthy of the gospel. In other words, our behavior is governed by our identity. And there are only two identities. Those who are of the church, of the family of God, and those who are of the world. So the question you might ask is, well, where is my citizenship? Am I an American citizen? And spiritually speaking, the answer is no. You're not. Now you physically reside here. You may have a passport and license here. And you have to follow the laws of this land because you are under it. But this America is not your home. You are an alien and a stranger here. America is part of the, is part of the world. It is not part of the church. America is not the church. Now, for some of us, we have been taught to believe that America is the exception to the biblical definition of the world. That America is a Christian nation. The term Christian nation, by the way, is an oxymoron. Okay. Christianity and nation states are two vastly different entities. Think about it in terms of access people enter Christianity by voluntary intention, by faith and baptism. But they usually enter a nation state by an arbitrary historical accident, by being born into that particular region. Geographically, Christianity is transnational. It has no boundaries, no lines, while all nation states are defined by borders. All one has to do is look to the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of religion. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So can you be a Hindu or a Muslim, uh, a Muslim or an atheist and be an American and American? The answer is absolutely. Now where it gets interesting is that for the first two centuries of our country, the political and social order was distinctly Christian. Not in its theology, in its conformity to the gospel, but in its social and cultural practice. Meaning for the first two centuries, culture, society, law, art, family, politics, and worship were heavily influenced by the church and informed by its authority. Public office, presidential debate, congressional law, judicial opinion, family life, and civic order was all shot through overtly and unashamedly with Christian belief, Christian belief, and Christian speech and identity. But you see, we can see from the beginning that Christianity is not, I'm sorry, America is not a Christian nation because all of America's policies were not in alignment with Christianity. We have the ugly scar of racism that has pervaded throughout our country in which Christians actively subjugated or looked the other way or refused to deal with at all this huge, massive problem. We have seen the steady decline of the number of people in America who identify as Christians as the years have gone on from America's inception. But it was a shock to the church's system after the triumph of World War II when the informal establishment of Christianity as America's religion suffered repeated losses in the courts, in the arts, and in the pews. There was an exodus from mainline churches that began in the 60s and has finally come for the evangelical church. It is really after the Cold War that you could say there was an end to Christian identity in this culture. Of all Americans born after 1995, fewer than half claim to be Christian and the percentage declines with each passing year. I want to fast forward to now. Our society, our culture, our law, our art, our family, our politics is distinctly post-Christian and increasingly antagonistic to the church and Christianity. And yet, our nation is haunted by principles that were influenced and introduced through the influence of Christianity, the equality of all humans, the value of compassion, and the hope of progress. Now, why am I going through all of this? Because many of you grew up in this Christian culture. The beliefs you had were once the consensus of society, or at least not questioned, And you have seen the transition from majority to minority. Where what you value is different from the majority of the society in which you live. And you long for a return to the majority. Why? Because it's easier. It's far more comfortable. And so we work at finding a way through politics or whatever to try to get back to that time. But my friends, I'm telling you that we need to come to grips with our amnesia and our nostalgia. Amnesia, meaning the Bill of Rights, and that Christianity was never intended to be a a Christian, America was never intended to be a Christian nation. And nostalgia because Christianity is not going to come back into vogue. We are at the end of an era. And we certainly don't want a Christianity that is ident- uh, a Christian identity that is divorced from Christian obedience. That's just bad. Why is it important to come to grips with the reality of the world in which we live? Because if we don't recognize these realities, we don't recognize our responsibilities to this world. The decisions I make, the actions I take, are they because I want to continue to get back to my position of comfort and safety and dominance? If so, people become impediments to my agenda. Meaning, am I looking and living in this world as a Christian? I became a vestryman in the Episcopal Church in probably 2004. My background in coming to Christ was through, uh, my first church was an Episcopal Church. And so when I was, uh, we moved to the area, I was elected as a vestryman at Galilee Episcopal Church a orthodox church in a very unorthodox denomination. And it was right during the time when the Episcopal Church was ordaining an openly practicing uh, gay bishop, Gene Robinson. And the question of the vestry was, what are we to do with this? And a denomination that increasingly is running away from God's word. And I remember as we discussed it with different people and had folks come in, I remember several folks. One got up and he said this I am an Episcopalian first and a Christian second. Talk about the wrong allegiance clouding one's judgment. Am I a Christian first and an American second? or am I an American first and a Christian second? See, we have to choose one. You can't have both. And you can't love this world in the right way until you are not a part of it. John said, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. I say all this because for some of us, America is an idol. It's a golden calf. And I'm doing whatever it takes to get it back to where it was. The golden age of morality in our country. There is no golden age of morality in a country that enslaved people and constantly used color to deny human dignity. Now, every culture has sins and pathologies of its own making. America has done some amazing things, and America has done some horrible things. Why is that? Because America is not the kingdom of God. No nation is. It's part of the world. See, we must not only confront the lies that offend us, but also the lies that serve us. America was and will continue to be part of the world. How do I know that? Because the Bible says so. It always has, and it always will be. And as such, it needs the gospel. And we know something about the world and its flaws and its foibles, but we also know this: that God so loved the world that He sent His only son. He came into the world to love it and to lead it to something better. And so you and I must see our world arightly if we are to live in it a rightly. This brings me to my second point. By the way, I really want to be an equal opportunity offender. My goal is that everyone would be offended by the sermon. So if I have not offended you by the end of the sermon, I want to apologize by the end of it, okay? God is calling us to be leaven in this world. First and foremost, and most importantly, to the individuals in which we have a relationship. And then secondly, to the society and culture as a whole. So, first to individuals. Every now and then, Lee Ellen trusts me enough to let me make the cornbread. And I get the Jiffy corn mix, uh, cornbread mix, right? And you have it. And this is how most mixes work they, they have almost all the ingredients in there, but there's something that's missing. That's lacking, that if you don't put it into the mix, it's not going to come out. It's not going to work. And in the case of Jiffy, I think it's uh, some milk and some eggs. The world is missing something. It's missing Christ. We are called to be leaven in the mix of the world. Think about the original leaven. That was Jesus Christ, wasn't it? He came into the world, and he brought the kingdom of God. And he said that the kingdom of God that I'm bringing is like leaven, which you put into the dough, and it will expand until it eventually permeates all of it. Jesus said on the Apostles' testimony that on this rock I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice he's speaking about expansion, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against its advance. And Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit and is sending us to be leaven into the world of America and around the world. Jesus put it this way, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Notice what he's saying, that you are the light, and this light you're to hold up so that it permeates into the darkness, that at every crack and every crevice, light pours in and transforms, and illuminates. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And we know what the purpose of salt is, right? To give flavor, to preserve. But he says, if this salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? In other words, church, get your house in order. Get your heart in order. Has the gospel leavened its way into my heart? so that there's holiness and love for those around me. If Jesus has not changed my life in such a way that he's given me a new outlook, a new desire, new tastes, there's work that I have to do. I want to bring to your attention four principles in how I believe God is calling us to mix with outsiders the people that we work with, the people in our neighborhood, the people at the gym that we work out with. Four principles, and here they are. The first is intentionality. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as God was making his appeal through us. We know something about ambassadors. The first is that they're appointed, right? No one gets authorized to speak for a country unless they're appointed. Jesus has appointed each one of us ambassadors. And we know that an ambassador goes to another country to represent the country where he came from. Our world is the kingdom of God. And we reside in the church. And he has appointed us to go into this world where we live. We are sent. And you will be my witnesses, Jesus says. Why does Jesus do this? Because the heart of Jesus is for the world. He says, if any of you have a hundred sheep and one wanders off, won't you leave the 99 and go find the one and bring it back? I tell you, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 who don't need to. Intentionality means I see myself as a sent one where God has placed me in my particular neighborhood, in my particular vocation, in my particular community. God has called me there to be his ambassador. We mix with outsiders intentionally and we mix with them humbly. This is Titus 3:3. 3, 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. You may not like how people in the world live. But you and I used to live that way as well, right? And would still be living that way, except for Jesus, who has shown us a better way. And when Jesus came to show us this way, he did not come haughty and arrogant, but he met us where we were at. He became a man, poor, A carpenter. He got down to our level. Like Paul, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the outsider, I became as an outsider. We must come into this world interacting with people humbly. And we must also come, my third principle, non-judgmentally. Notice what Paul says in this passage, in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? is, Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. This passage is about judging Christians' behavior. See, to be a Christian is to be held to a standard. In fact, a standard I want to be held to. The standard is the scriptures which say how we are to behave. And that is in holiness and love. And indeed, to be a Christian is to submit myself under the authority of the church who is authorized to judge my behavior against that standard. But this verse tells us where Paul says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? In other words, I don't have any authority to hold them to any standard. Certainly not the standard of the Christian in the church. They don't claim to be Christians. They have not submitted to the authority of the church. So why do I think that I have the authority to judge them? And why do I expect an unbeliever to act like a Christian? So don't judge their behavior. You don't have the right, nor do you have the authority. There is a judge for their life, and he is way above your pay grade. His name is God. But look at how Jesus came into the world. Jesus, who was God's son, who had the authority to judge the behavior of outsiders, and yet we don't see him doing so. In fact, he had plenty of judgment upon the religious establishment, right? Matthew 9.9, as Jesus passed, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners aka prostitutes came and were cli- reclining with Jesus and his disciples and when the pharisees saw this they said to his disciples why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners the pharisees would not get near these people wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole and there was Jesus at table with these tax collectors and sinners and Jesus said go and learn that those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick. This means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus saw people as sick, not evil. He was the physician and he came to heal. And he rebuked not the unbelievers at the table, but the believers. He said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This word mercy, he's quoting the Old Testament, is translated steadfast love. In other words, care and concern is what I desire for those who have wandered off the path. Not sacrifice meaning these sacrifices you're doing at the temple while your hearts are so far from me. Jesus loved these outsiders. Even while they were rebelling against them, he loved them. And they felt it. And it moved them. Because it is love that has the power to change the human heart. 2 Corinthians 5.16 puts it this way. Being Christians from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. In other words, we see them with the eyes of Christ. Did Jesus condone their behavior? No. But he didn't condemn them either. He didn't have to. They already knew what he was about. And people's consciences already know that they're not acting in accordance with the God who made them. His life, the way he lived, reflected who he was. And his life was the testimony that moved them. So, Carlos, are you saying that I should go to a bar and get drunk with my buddies from work? No but I am saying you should go to a bar with them. Absolutely. Because if you're living out their faith, your faith, they know you represent Christ wherever you go. The kid at your school who is transgender, you should befriend them and accept them as they are, not demanding that they change you should communicate to them that my friendship with you is not conditional upon you believing the same things that I do. And I do believe something, but I am much more interested in hearing about what you believe than holding you to any standard. I'm not holding them to any standard is not the same thing as us not having a standard, but they don't want to hear your standard at least not yet. Too often as Christians, we listen to, he- to speak rather than listening to hear. We're ready to tell them where they want to be heard. You know, I don't, think, I don't think I've ever led anyone to Christ. I think people lead themselves to Christ. And we all know it's actually the Holy Spirit doing it. I'm just along for the ride, right? People don't want answers. They want someone to walk through the questions with. And so we are non judgmental. We're humble. And principle number four, we're prayerful. This is a spiritual work, my friends. 1 Corinthians 12 3 says, Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. But 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Notice, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. We are in the fishing business, not the hunting business. And in the fishing business, it's the fish that chooses to bite, right? So, my friends, we need to examine our life. Am I intentional? How do I approach non-Christians? Do I know any? Do I have any intentionality to my life? My challenge to you is to have five to 50 non believers in your life who you have a friendship with. And I'm talking a genuine friendship. These people aren't projects, they're people. My boat where I fish from is pickleball. It's where I hang out with people who aren't like me. And I've made wonderful friends with people. Some of them have come to church to hear the gospel, some of them ask me about my life. Some of them don't, but they're my friends and I'm committed to them, whether they come to Christ or not. Be intentional and also be nonjudgmental. What do your coworkers say about you? That he or she cares or that he or she is standoffish? Are people comfortable being themselves around you? The tax collectors and prostitutes were comfortable around Jesus, and he was the son of God. Maybe you have been the morality police in your neighborhood or where you work, and you need to apologize and start listening to hear and not listening to speak. If people are going to hate you, make sure that they hate you for the right reason, not the wrong reason. Because we are called to be leaven in this world to the individuals that we meet day by day. Which brings me to my final point, that we are called to be leaven in our culture, in our society. Does the church have a larger part to play in our culture? In other words, do I have a responsibility to speak into a world that is promoting ideologies that are increasingly antagonistic to Christianity? The answer is, it depends. Why am I speaking? In other words, am I speaking because my way of life is influenced and threatened, and I want to have that back? My answer is, keep your mouth shut. But if the reason that you are speaking into your culture is because I want to help and care for others in this culture, the answer is yes. We are blessed with the opportunity to influence the policies that govern our nation. There are many brothers and sisters in Christ that have absolutely no opportunity to do that on any cultural level. Religion will always have a place in politics. And everyone has a religion that she or he promotes. Christianity should advocate for Christian principles, just like secular nationalism advocates for secular principles. Why? The answer is because God has given us his word and his law, both so that we would be holy And so that we would treat each other well. Why does God tell us not to lie? A, because it's wrong. But B, because it breaks down trust that we have for one another. Why does God call us not to covet? The answer is because it does harm in the way that we see other people. Rather wanting their stuff rather than being happy for what they have. God's laws are the best opportunity for people to be blessed in this world, whether they're followers of Christ or not. So we should advocate for these policies, uh, for, for Christian laws and principles being put into society because they are, they are the best things. For the people. In other words, they're our way of hoping that people will be blessed. But how should we speak as we seek to influence our culture? We should not attempt to dominate the political process or to make the nation completely Christian, but to seek instead to bring about change by persuasion. Rather than trying to overthrow the government, we should advocate the cause by supporting laws, electing candidates, podcasting, writing, developing think tanks. We should not force our opinions, but we also should not argue for them. I'm going to give you four principles. I'm trying to be practical here that help to govern and guide in what we speak into our culture. For ours, I stole them from someone else and shaped them for my own. Are you ready for them? Number one, resistance. Resistance to injustice and tyranny. The church is always and everywhere called to resist injustice and tyranny wherever they are found. And it does this whether it has any social power or political prestige to speak of. Think of apartheid or Nazism or the antebellum South. Was there a responsibility, is there a responsibility for the the church to speak against slavery in the antebellum South? Absolutely. And some did, and many did not. But God's word is clear that we are to speak up for the marginalized, the oppressed, the overlooked and the poor, to children, about children and women and victims. Listen to Exodus 22:21. Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you are aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I certainly will hear them. And notice how he speaks of the poor in Deuteronomy 24, 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. As the church, we are called to uphold justice. And there is a huge difference between justice and just us. The evangelical church used to be known for founding hospitals, schools, and orphanages. Helping those on the outside used to be our thing. But in the past decades, the church has become so cloistered that it cares little for those who are outside. We're more about promoting our agenda. The church, instead of insisting on beliefs about Jesus, needs to act more like Jesus, a friend of sinners and an advocate for the oppressed. And so we should speak up for the oppressed, champion the fallen, speak for the powerless, defend the cause for the weak, prioritize healing for the hurting, food for the poor, shelter for the homeless, and mental health for the broken. Is it right that people with tran- transgender beliefs are discriminated against? No, it's not right. Do I have a responsibility to do something about it? Well, I don't agree with transgender ideology. I didn't say anything about whether you agree with transgender ideology or not. I said, Do you have a responsibility to? stand up for people being discriminated against? And the answer is yes. I mean, we should all agree that no one should be discriminated against because of their beliefs, right? Well, it doesn't advance our agenda. Our agenda is Christ's agenda. To love God and love your neighbor as yourself and to love your enemies. Is it right that Muslims in this country are discriminated against? No. Well, I don't agree with Islam. Do we only support justice for our tribe? And if so, is that really justice? No, that's preference. What resistance does not mean in a world that's increasingly anti-Christian, I need to make it more Christian because I'm comfortable that way. Well, if I don't speak i don't say something then people will ban the bible and if i don't elect this particular candidate then the, uh, he won't do this in the courts and we need the supreme court we need all of that my friends god does not need political help to advance the gospel god does not need to get the right votes on the supreme court in order to advance the gospel Christianity does not need a leg up from us. He needs us to be the church and to resist for the right reasons. Resistance. The second is repentance. The church is always and everywhere called to repent of its sins, crimes, and failures, which is to say the injustice and idolatry that we are tasked with resisting is reliably, first of all, found within the church. And judgment must begin at the house of God. The credibility of the gospel is rarely threatened by the church's failures so much as by its unwillingness to admit them or what is most scandalous of all, its readiness to cover them up. So what do we as Redeemer Presbyterian need to repent of? Well, we don't need to repent of anything. That's pride, my friends. Really? We don't need to repent of anything? We always will need to repent. Why? Because we are broken, sinful people. We resist, we repent, and we receive. Number three. And I am getting to the end of this. God is the universal creator, and the world he created is good. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. In other words, all truth is God's truth. And do we resist anything outside of us because it doesn't come from us? In other words, do we have open ears to hear truth, even when it's from people that are not believers or that we may not even like? The answer is humility. All good things come from God. I want you to be a people who are not afraid to read things from people that you even don't agree with, but are well-trained enough in the Bible that you're able to discern what is good and true and what is not. But I certainly don't want you to be a people that are afraid of anything that is out there. God has stuff to teach us from the most unlikely of sources. And this is my final point, to reform. The gospel is the hope of the world. It commands righteousness among the people of God and justice among the nations. The gospel, in a word, reforms. It generates adjustment in the way things are with a view to where they shall be in the kingdom of Christ. The abolitionists of England and America the spread of child labor laws, the civil rights movement of the 1960s, these are not instances of secular activism. They are the word of God in its triumphal march through history. So we must proclaim the gospel to the world and seek to apply God's word to all areas. Sexuality, capitalism, race relations, I could go into all of these things, but I'm out of time, which is horrible. But the answer is Jesus came full of grace and truth. When a transgender person wants me to call them by pronouns that are not who they are, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I'm not going to lie to them. Lying to someone is not loving them. But at the same time, I'm going to work my darndest to let them know, A, that I love them, and to try to accommodate them, right? Racism. Is there a race problem in the United States of America? Of course there is. Why? Because America is the world. America does it better than some, worse than some. There will always be a race problem in America. And we need to be a part of doing something about it, right? Why? because we're about justice. Could go on and on, but I don't have time. What is the point? The point is God has called us to be leaven in this world with the individuals that we meet and in the culture in which we live. So by God's grace, let's do so. Let's pray. God, there's much that we do need to repent of. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not been concerned for justice, for the poor, for the oppressed. Um, We've turned the other way. We've been about our comfort. Lord, help us to be about your business. Give us eyes to see people uh, like you see them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.